is the NOAA Ocean Podcast. I'm Tori Kitch. This is the second half of a two-part episode. If you missed that first one, check our show notes or look for it in your podcast player of choice. It's called the Microplastic Muscle Connection, Part 1. We're joined by Amy Uren, Chief Scientist for NOAA's Marine Debris Program, and Ed Johnson, Physical Scientist with the Muscle Watch Program, which is part of NOAA's National Centers for Coastal Ocean Science. In part one, Amy and Ed discussed their recent study in collaboration with Loyola University in Chicago that investigated the idea of using freshwater mussels in the Great Lakes to monitor microplastic pollution. And we also learned what the Muscle Watch program is all about. In this episode, we continue our conversation about how their study was set up, which is a really great primer on how the scientific process works. Amy and Ed also discussed how unexpected results are often part of the scientific process and how conducting a study in the field with living organisms is so challenging. Amy, I want to ask if you could walk us through the study and more broadly talk about how the scientific process works. The scientific method is a continuous process of acquiring knowledge, and this typically starts by someone making an observation about the natural world. So you're out in nature, you see something that strikes you as interesting or curious, um, but you can't really explain it. You're not surely why it's, sure why it's happening or, or why something is there. So you've made an observation about something. Now, tying everything back to our study, the observations that we knew about these freshwater mussels was minimal, but we had a lot of information from the published literature about bivalve species globally and, and other species. So what we knew going into this is that Many bivalve species that are sampled from their natural environment do have chemical pollutants in their bodies and do have microplastics in their bodies. And we also know that the invasive dracinid mussels found in the Great Lakes are known to ingest microplastics in a lab setting. And these freshwater mussels have long been collected in the wild and analyzed for chemical pollutants by the Great Lakes Muscle Watch Program, but they hadn't yet been analyzed for microplastics. And also, what we were aware of is that no studies had looked at the spatial and temporal abundance of microplastics from these mussels in the Great Lakes. So we had a lot of information generally about bivalves and about these freshwater mussels from a lab setting, but not a lot of data on collecting them from the wild. So those are the observations we were aware of and had made. And then the next part of the scientific process is that you ask questions about those observations, and then you have to formally test those questions. So for our study, our questions were, do these invasive mussels collected from Milwaukee Bay specifically have microplastics in their tissue? We also asked, does the amount of microplastics in muscle tissue depend on the location of the bay where the muscles are collected? And then when presented together in the muscle, does the concentration of chemical pollutants, is it related to the amount of microplastics found in the muscle tissue? So after you think about the questions you'd like to ask, you have to form what is called a hypothesis. So you might have heard of this term. Um, the word literally means putting or placing under. So it's, a hypothesis is the basis or foundation for something. Uh, you can think of it as the potential answer to your question. It might not be the correct answer, but it's a possible or a feasible explanation. And so in terms of a hypothesis, our hypotheses were, we had several. Invasive mussels in Milwaukee Bay have microplastics in their tissue. 
That's the first one. The second hypothesis was the amount of microplastics found in muscle tissue will depend on where in the bay the muscle is collected. And then lastly, the concentration of chemical pollutants found in muscle tissue will be related to the amount of microplastics found in the tissue. So after you have your hypotheses formed, you develop a set of predictions based on those hypotheses. And so you can think of a prediction as simply the outcome that we would expect to see if our hypothesis is correct. And so for this study, our predictions were that microplastics will be found in muscle tissue, that muscles sampled from locations that are close to sources of pollution in the bay will have more microplastics in their tissue, and that microplastics and chemical pollutants that are found together in muscle tissue will have a positive relationship with one another, meaning that their values will move in the same direction. So if one goes up, the other will go up. So the more microplastics in the tissue, the more chemical pollutants in the tissue. And what are the next steps? So once you make your predictions, you then have to go through a series of either lab experiments or field experiments or field observational studies. And the purpose of those is to determine whether the observations you make during your study match up with what you predicted to happen. And if your study observations match your predictions, then your hypothesis is said to be supported and it's likely correct. But if your study observations don't match your predictions, then your hypothesis is not supported and it's likely wrong. So in our case, we had some uh, interesting results here. So the first was that, yes, we found microplastics in these freshwater invasive mussels. So that supported our first hypothesis. But then things got a little bit squirrely for us. Um, there was so much variation in microplastic concentration in the mussels across different muscle size classes, across the different months in which they were sampled, so that our second hypothesis was really only partially supported. Remember, we wanted to know at different points in the bay were concentrations of microplastics in the muscles different? And the answer is yes, but it depended on a lot of other factors. Um, and then lastly, there was little evidence to support that microplastics and chemical contaminants were positively related to one another in the muscle tissue. And so the final step in all of this, once you've got your results, is you, you know, depending on how well your results match your predictions, um, you might have to refine your original hypothesis, change it, alter it, even flat out reject it. And then the very last thing is to just reflect on your results and you use them to guide any, any next steps that you might want to take, perhaps another study. For our results, the initial conclusion is that these particular freshwater invasive mussels might not serve as a good biomonitor of plastic pollution in the Great Lakes because the amount of microplastics found in the muscle tissue was very different among the different sizes of mussels and very different between the time periods that we collected. And these differences were the same as or higher than the differences among the sites. So there was just too much variation happening that we couldn't definitively say or make any conclusions about spatial location in the bay. And so then what is usually done when you reflect on this is suggest future studies. One thing that cropped up to us immediately was that, well, we probably needed more collection sites spread out throughout the bay 
to better capture the different nuances of water quality in the bay and probably need to sample across more months. And then also perhaps it might be useful to conduct laboratory experiments to measure how chemical pollutants behave once they're inside of muscles. Um, whether or not that muscle has microplastics in its tissue, just what's happening internally with the muscle when it's trying to process these types of pollutants. Ed, what are your thoughts on the study results? Were you surprised? No, I wasn't surprised by the results. Amy did a great job of describing the scientific process, and it's difficult. Laboratory studies are way different than field studies. In the real world, in the field, there's all sorts of variables that you can't possibly control for. And so there's a lot more unknowns than knowns here. We don't have a clear answer yet. As an illustration of what I'm getting at, we know that bivalves filter food out of the water column, but they're also pretty effective at getting rid of the potential food items that clearly aren't appealing to them. They can be so selective to want to ingest a certain type of algae as a food source, but they'll eject another kind of algae that they don't like. Now, that's pretty fascinating. So Ed mentioned this selective ingestion and selective rejection by bivalves. And so we have a partner at the University of Connecticut that focuses on this. And so he found that in oysters, so the eastern oyster and in blue mussels, um, these are lab studies, but did find that the more spherical particles were rejected more often than fibers. So that's a really cool finding. In, in their natural food items, they kind of selectively do the feeding, but they can also do it with these synthetic particles. I just wanted to add on to that. In general, we think that when a scientific experiment is executed well, that can be demonstrated or proved because the experiment can be repeated with the same result. It's generally easier to repeat laboratory experiments between two different labs doing the same, trying to answer the same question. The, the field studies in the real world are difficult to repeat. Amy, what are your thoughts about the work you do in the field out in the natural world, so to speak? So yeah, controlling for all the different environmental factors that are out there is, is impossible, right? All the things that could be influencing your system or your organism of interest. But another challenge is when you're doing field work is weather in terms of its impact on your logistics, the, the logistics of sampling, impacts to sampling devices that you might have to leave deployed in the environment, and also how severe weather may or may not impact your actual study site physically. We're marine biologists, right? So in our careers, Ed and I have used ships, small boats, divers to accomplish a lot of our work. Those resources can be expensive, and oftentimes, you know, there's a schedule for when you can use the boat or the ship or when the divers are available. So you have this window of opportunity. And if the weather is not cooperating, you got to roll with it. you got to adjust on the fly. I mean, I've been blown off the water numerous times by storms and water spouts, and I've lost sampling gear. And I've had one of my study sites, an underwater seagrass bed, it just completely become reconfigured because a tropical storm went through. And I'm sure Ed has a lot of stories like this as well. So that, that's another challenge with doing field work, 
you don't know when you when you get to your location what's going to happen on a day-to-day basis. You try to plan for it as best you can, but still, you know, weather is fickle. To wrap this up, Amy, what are the main points you want people to think about related to your study? Our results, they were all over the place, so to speak. This is a pilot study. So initially, our conclusion is that these particular muscles might not be the best choice as a biomonitor for microplastics in the Great Lakes. And that's okay. That's the whole point is that, you know, you go in thinking, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to measure all the things. And voila, we're just going to incorporate microplastics analysis into Muscle Watch forever. And it didn't quite turn out that way. But there's a lot of ways that we can tweak this study and try to control for a lot of those environmental variables and extend our sampling uh, that maybe the next time around, the result might be different. But it's okay to initially say, maybe these critters really aren't the best choice for microplastic monitoring. And what would you say this tells us about the scientific process in general? A lot of times, science is depicted as this infallible system of knowledge gathering, right? Where it's very formulaic and it's cut and dry and it's always portrayed as ending up very positive. So studies are conducted, the data support what was expected, the results are published, and then those results get used to make some type of management decision. And in our line of work, the decisions are usually how to manage some type of marine resource. But as Ed mentioned previously, negative or ambiguous results are also really important and they're quite valuable. They're a quite valuable part of the scientific process because when you achieve those unexpected results and you have that moment of, huh, you know, why did that happen? You have to then critically evaluate what you've done, right? And you have to reconsider your current line of thinking on your topic, and it challenges you to redesign your study or your experiment, or maybe consider alternative explanations as you move forward. And that's how science makes progress. And this is how studies complement and build upon one another. Even though our results might have been a little wishy-washy, you take that into consideration and you move forward the next time. Amy and Ed, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. This is the NOAA Ocean Podcast. Thanks for listening. A reminder to check our show notes for links to this study, to the Marine Debris Program, and to the Muscle Watch Program. And subscribe to us in your podcast player of choice so you never miss an episode. <laughs>